The first three months I did it were impossible. I mean, I was crying and I was, I, I couldn't talk to people. I would go to parties and they would be talking about, you know, going on vacation or their new clothes or even certain things about their kids. And I would be sort of like I couldn't connect to everyday life. I was just living in too deep of a universe <laughs> over time that changed not because I didn't feel it as deeply but because I realized it just wasn't a healthy way to live so you kind of learn with repeated exposure to sort of put it away a little bit but then you know I still accepted phone calls when I was not at work and things like that but I think over time you sort of develop a little bit more resilience when cancer enters your life things get real very quickly Today I'm speaking with Eve Makoff, palliative care doctor specializing in working with cancer patients. Eve talks about following her father's example in choosing medicine as a route to fulfilling life work. Drawn to the intensity of inpatient care, Eve has found professional gratification in learning how to listen to her patients help them to understand their options, and facilitate articulation of their goals and needs in life and death. I'm Diane McDaniel, and this is Real Cancer. Welcome, Eve. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Let's begin by having you tell me a little bit about yourself and a bit about why you became a doctor. I am an L.A. girl, born and raised here. My father is a physician and is a kidney specialist. He's now retired. I think my whole life I saw somebody who was very passionate about the work that they did um, and never got bored by it. It was definitely consuming, but it was something that he always believed in. And I think that that sort of drove me to go in that direction. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you were inspired by the um, example that your father provided of uh, having meaningful work. Definitely. Excellent. Recently, you've been working as a palliative doctor for cancer patients. Can you just um, talk about what palliative care is, um, how it's different from hospice care, and how you work with patients? Sure. So palliative care is an extra layer of support that's provided for patients who are dealing with serious illness. It's an uh, interdisciplinary field. It should involve therapists, social workers, chaplains, sometimes pharmacologists, nurses, nurse practitioners, and physicians. It's a field that grew out of the hospice movement, but hospice is defined by specifically focusing on the last six months of life. Palliative care is something that can happen at any stage of a serious illness um, and at any age of patient. Mm, okay, and so what are the, the goals of palliative care? It's to help patients going through serious illness and their families have the best kind of support that they can and the best kind of symptom management, best quality of life, and to also help them to understand their disease and understand what their options are. All right, good. Maybe you could um, help us to understand it a little bit better by just telling us about how you work with patients. I started a palliative care service in the cancer center at the place where I work. 
I specifically focused on cancer patients because I had been working in the inpatient setting when people were admitted to the hospital and found that there were a lot of people with very serious cancers who really didn't understand where they were in their disease, what their options were, what their prognosis was. And also uh, these people and their families were experiencing a very high degree of distress, a lot of anxiety, depression, and a lot of symptoms that were really out of control. So we step in and we help as, to the best of our ability in a, with a team approach to help with all of those things. But in the hospital, it's almost too late. Things are already kind of getting out of control. Patients are not functioning well. Caregivers are falling apart. And we found, and there's data, much data to support, that the earlier you start dealing with palliative care in the course of a serious illness, the more that you can sort of have a plan to address all of the patient's and family's concerns. So you really have uh, patients who have had cancer for a while, or they're very sick and they're quite advanced in their in their disease. Well, sometimes, I mean, what I found as I started the process was there are some diseases that at the outset, it's best for us to be involved. For example, I started a project where I saw every patient with advanced pancreas cancer. And most patients diagnosed with pancreas cancer are advanced at the time of diagnosis. And that really means that they're not going to be cured by surgery. So we know that the prognosis is likely to be limited regardless of any treatment. Some, it's gotten better for sure, but we know that there is a known course that they may take. And having someone like myself and my team involved from the beginning, we can sort of anticipate and work through all the bumps in the road. Mm, okay. Yeah. How does a patient get uh, transitioned into palliative care? How do you work and coordinate with other doctors? So it's, it's actually not a transition, and the best way to do palliative care is as part of a team so that we're not so scary. A lot of patients, when they hear palliative care, they think it means hospice. And while all hospice is palliative in nature, not all palliative care is hospice care. Mm-hmm. So the first time I meet people, I would say to them, do you understand what I do? And either they haven't been told at all what my role is or, or who I am, or they've been told I'm a pain management doctor, or they're kind of bottled up and defensive and saying, what is it that you're here to tell me? So I kind of have to diffuse the myth that palliative care is the same as telling patients that they're dying within six months or imminently. The best way we found, and you know, since I started doing this in the cancer center three years ago, the best way is if we're introduced early on in the care of a patient with a cancer, either with a poor prognosis or a patient who's going to have a very tough time with treatment, as part of the team. Mm-hmm. The most effective relationships that I had with patients were when the oncologist actually introduced me face-to-face and said, hey, this is Eve, she's part of our team. She's gonna help with your pain, she's gonna help with your symptoms, and she's also gonna talk to you about how you're feeling going through all of this. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you started the palliative service within the oncology group. What draws you to working with cancer patients? It was kind of a evolution for me. I started out working with kidney patients. I'm a nephrologist by training, and they are also often seriously ill. 
but I found that I didn't really like doing the outpatient work because I did do general internal medicine as well, a lot of coughs and colds. And for whatever strange reason, I'm very drawn to intensity. And I switched to being uh, an inpatient doctor and I handled all kinds of internal medicine. But again, being drawn to the more seriously ill of ill patients, I found myself wanting to spend a lot of time with the cancer patients that were on my service. And I think it was just a journey unlike any other. It's different than heart failure. It's different than kidney failure. It's different than neurologic disease. I think we have a lot of information about cancer. There's a lot in the world about cancer, a lot of preconceived notions about it. And I think even more than some of those other serious diseases, although there are other diseases in this category, cancer is really a source of trauma. Just getting the diagnosis is really traumatic. And then all the things that follow, getting your port placed, the pain of that, getting IV access repeatedly if you don't have a port, having a side effect from a treatment, or finding out that a treatment's not working. It's like a series of traumas that really impact a patient and their family. And I felt that having somebody there to kind of go through that, to almost preview it, and to also sit with you through that was just incredibly meaningful, hopefully for patients and and definitely for me. Right, yeah. So you have found work that you found to be rewarding and gratifying, um, as you saw with your father. Definitely. Yeah. But it must also be very difficult work. What are some of the challenges that you face in working with uh, this group of patients? My personality is why I'm drawn to this work and why I think I'm effective at it. But one of the problems, which is implicit in all of that, is that I think I have some trouble drawing boundaries. And when I'm somebody's really struggling, or they're really sick, or I'm worried about them over the weekend, you know, I would end up giving patients my cell phone number, my email address, which a lot of doctors do now. Mm-hmm. But I would feel like the only way to properly do this kind of work is to be available. And some of that is I think I put myself in their shoes and would say, if I was going through this, what would I want? And what would I want to feel on a Saturday evening if I was having excruciating pain? Do I want to call the cancer center and have to talk to 10 people before I can reach my doctor? Or do I want to send a text and feel like somebody's holding my hand? And it was really hard for me not to do that, Mm -hmm. not with everybody, but with certain patients. Right, right. And what about patients? How willing are they to accept the the care that you're giving them? Not the emails and phone numbers and stuff like that, but just the palliative care that you're offering. I learned a lot early on. When I started having an interest in it, when I was still doing inpatient work, I made some missteps, and I learned a lot from it. I had one family and one patient who was not doing well at all. He had very limited prognosis, and I had all this empathy, and I wanted to talk to him and his wife and his family. And I I came in, and I was, you know, how are you feeling, and, you know, holding his hand and all of this. And the next time I came back, they were like, he he doesn't want to see you. The wife wife doesn't want to see you. Mm. And I 
I think ultimately I did get to go in and he said, you know what, I just don't like how you look at me with death in your eyes. Mm, yeah. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> so I've learned sort of this balance between being empathic, but not, uh, I don't know, I don't think it's pity, but I think it was this sense of too much. Mm-hmm. How to kind of look at someone as though they're your equal. Right. You know, this is my peer. And I'm, I'm here to help them be strong, but also help them be honest. And I think that really helped me to be very aware of my facial <laughs> reactions. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to discuss some very deep and important issues with your patients and their families. Tell me about these conversations and how you conduct them. Yeah, I mean, that's something that has definitely evolved, and that has been probably the most gratifying part of of what I do. When I first learned about communication, it was when I went and did some palliative care courses, mostly at Harvard and and at MD Anderson. And at Harvard, they actually have a study going on where they teach people communication skills and they do it by using this checklist and I don't even remember all of the elements of the checklist but I kind of used it in my head uh, when I first was learning communication techniques which I found are actually learnable and teachable but I think it has a lot to do with open-ended questions meeting people where they are not having an agenda and really just being present in the moment. And it's very hard as a doctor with your phone going off and, you know, all sorts of demands. Um, But it really is about being very focused on where a patient is able to go in that moment. One of the problems in our field, especially in the hospital and sometimes even in the clinic, is that other practitioners bring us in to sort of work some kind of magic. Like, we want you to get the patient to be a do not resuscitate the next time they go in the hospital or on Mm -hmm. this visit. Or we need to have you help them fill out an advanced directive or a post form, which is another uh, document that we use. And sometimes we can accomplish that. Sometimes I can accomplish that the first time I meet someone because they've thought through where they are and what their goals are for their life. And if they have three or four months to live, how they want to live that time. But if they haven't thought through those things, you're not going to complete those documents. But you are able to say, what are your biggest fears? Mm -hmm. What do you value? What would make it so that it isn't worth living? What do you fear? Have you ever had any experience with somebody dying? What does that look like? Do you understand your prognosis? What has your oncologist told you? And it's never my job to give someone their prognosis. Right. But if they say to me, you know what, I don't really know. And I'm like, well, what do you want to know? Do you want to know that at all? Mm-hmm. Well, no, I actually don't want to know. So that leads you in a totally different direction. Whereas there are other times they'll say, I do want to know. And I'll text their oncologist and say, do you want me to tell you what they said? Mm-hmm. Or, or the oncologist will get on the phone in that moment. Or we'll have a visit together. And then it, it can go in all kinds of directions in terms of how their family is doing and what they're worried about for their children. And, and we can come up with a plan for you know, how to communicate with their family or who, what other team members need to get involved if they have small children. It's, it's kind of an 
iterative process. I don't try to accomplish that kind of relationship the first time I meet someone. With some people, you can. But with other people, you know, the first time I meet them, the only thing I can talk about is pain because they're in pain. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to talk about advanced directives and, and prognosis if all they're thinking about is pain. But if five visits past that, their cancer's getting worse, their treatment's not working, they already have a connection with me. Right. And we can kind of say, you know, it looks like things are changing right now. You want to talk about that? Mm-hmm. It was incredible. I mean, for me to be, to kind of learn the skill of getting people to trust me, mm-hmm. but not pushing too hard. I mean, some of them had very strong reactions to some therapists or social workers, or even the idea of seeing a social worker or a psychiatrist. And I felt really strongly that because I was neither of those things, it gave them sort of the freedom to be open with me because it seemed safe because I'm sort of this clinical internal medicine doctor. I was struck just with your description of learning communication skills, and you've been a doctor for many years. Did you did you have anything like that when you were going through your medical school or, or post-medical school training? It's really interesting. I mean, I went to Brown, and they had more of that than I think most schools in the 90s. And we had sort of this... Uh, separate, and I don't remember it very well, but we had a a curriculum for sort of the patient experience type thing. It wasn't called that, but it was, we had actor patients and they would sort of judge how we spoke to them and sort of uh, guide us a little bit, Mm -hmm. but very little in terms of talking about end of life Mm -hmm. or serious illness. Very, very little training. And now when I think back sometimes to when Before I had that training and before I started using it, I even cringed sometimes at the ways I dealt with some of those conversations. I just wasn't ready. Yeah, yeah. What do you find most difficult and most important about the conversations that you're having with your patients? Well, the difficult part is how much I love them. And, I mean, there were ones when when I I switched from one cancer center to another, I had to leave some of the patients that I had. Mm -hmm. And they were like, but how am I going to talk to you? You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) can you give me your email because I'll just miss you? I mean, I I really, you know, made those connections. And then especially if they got worse or, but at the same time, that was the best part of it because I was able to be part of sometimes the, the end of life that somebody really wanted. I had one guy, and I'll just try not to give too many descriptors, but big, strong man, you know, and really couldn't deal, athlete couldn't deal with the fact that his body was doing this to him. And his uh, significant other, when he was finally on hospice, and we had made that decision sort of together, said to me, thank you for being the grown up in the room. Thank, thank you for being able to tell us how things are. Mm-hmm. And that was really meaningful to me because as, as horrible as the situation was, it felt really important. Right. So you're clearly a very compassionate and empathic person. 
you clearly take a lot of joy and, and meaning out of the connections that you make with people. But I imagine because of the situation where you're in, where people are in advanced stages of their cancers, some of them are going to die and some of them are just going to continue to decline after you stop working with them. What's the impact on you emotionally of, of the work that you're doing? It has changed. And I know in speaking to other people in my profession, the first three months I did it were impossible. I mean, I was crying and I was, I I couldn't talk to people. I would go to parties and they would be talking about, you know, going on vacation or their new clothes or even certain things about their kids. And I would be sort of like I couldn't connect to everyday life. Mm, I was just living in too deep of a universe. Over time, that changed, not because I didn't feel it as deeply, but because I realized it just wasn't a healthy way to live. So you kind of learn with repeated exposure to sort of put it away a little bit. But then, you know, I still accepted phone calls when I was not at work and things like that. But I think over time, you sort of develop a little bit more resilience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of the conversations that you are having with people deal with anxiety about their illness and, and uh, potential death. How do you help people to cope with those, those issues? Yeah, that's the big one. There was a point when I started to feel really useless. And I think the better I got at it, the more useless I started feeling in the face of that kind of anxiety. When I would have a patient, say, a you know, high-powered executive type telling me, you know, this is when my wife and I were supposed to start traveling. I just retired. She's slowing down at work. And now I can't make any plans because I don't know if I'm going to be alive. Mm-hmm. Right? And he was so depressed and so anxious and it just hit me. This is existential distress. Mm-hmm. It is widespread for people who have cancer, especially incurable cancer. There is absolutely no answer. And there is nothing I'm going to say that's going to make that better. But I did find that acknowledging that and saying, this is incredibly hard. I can't imagine what you're going through. I mm-hmm. wish I had the words here are some of the things that you can do to try to, as they say, stay in the moment, be mindful, manage your anxiety, but nothing is gonna take it away. It's kind of just managing it. Mm -hmm. And once I realized that, I also started to realize that just my being there, being present for them was enough. Mm Yeah. What kind of feedback do you get from your your patients and or their families and loved ones? I have had some donations in, in my name, which is really flattering and, and lovely. After someone dies, to have their family do that is um, is really kind and means a lot. Not mm. because I don't they don't tell you how much money it is. It's not about that. It goes to the department, but it's more along the way. Sometimes afterwards, you know, emails, there's some I'm in touch with, even on Facebook, just a couple. Sometimes I run into people. A lot of, a lot of gratitude. 
I'm not going to say I haven't ever had any negative feedback either. I haven't had much, but there's been some. And sometimes you know when you're dealing with a family member who is not going to deal well when someone dies and they're always going to blame somebody. I've been caught up in that as well. Sure, of So it's, it's definitely not... Um, you're never going to get through this without criticism. But also importantly, the feedback I got from oncologists was really meaningful to me because I think they really felt like what I did and our service did. And part of the time I didn't have a team, so it was just me, even though ideally it's a team. Mm-hmm. I think I helped them to feel like they weren't in it alone and that they had somewhere to talk about the hard emotional part of their work because oncologists as much as we want them to be able to have these conversations and all of this part of the reason they can't do it is because they really just don't have time Mm -hmm. like I know I saw their schedules I mean they some of them see 20 or 30 patients a day and how are they going to sit and sit with them through their anxiety and and talk about their goals and their fears and their hopes and all that it's really hard for them to do that and a lot of them do anyway but also they started dropping by my office and just saying, I feel so useless. I feel so sad. How can I not help someone? Hmm. Or when we had a you know, 40-year-old patient die, you know, that affected everybody. Like how, I feel like I did something wrong. I feel like I failed. Hmm. And that sort of being able to serve in that place for other providers was also meaningful in addition to what I was able to do for patients. I'm just thinking back to the beginning of our conversation when you talked about your deciding to become a doctor and and being motivated by your father and then initially going into different kinds of of medicine and, and currently you're here. Is this what you imagined that you're doctoring would be like? It's interesting because uh, I remember in 10th grade (laughs) at Pally High, they asked us what we thought we were going to do with our life. I don't remember where or when that was asked. And I said I was going to be a psychiatrist. Mm. And I went to medical school and I was going to be a psychiatrist. And then I switched when I was there because internal medicine, first of all, I think it was the rotation at the psych hospital was not exactly where my interest was, sort of like inpatient psychiatry, so that was most of my exposure. Mm. But internal medicine just seemed like all the really smart people were doing internal medicine, and you knew so much about so many different things. And so maybe I, I needed to go through that, and I actually think having all of the knowledge about all of the organs in the body helps me to help patients more because they have specific questions that are physiologic in basis. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to them about what happens when you have a code blue to your heart and what doctors do and and what the team does, it actually helps me to be able to explain the medicine as well. Mm -hmm. So it's a long answer, but I am exactly where I think I thought I would be in some strange way. Right, right. <laughs> you just didn't know that this was going to be exactly what you would be doing. Right, because I didn't know what palliative care was. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are some of the lessons, big lessons, small lessons, that you've learned from working with people with cancer? 
I think a lot the the trauma aspect of it, and we talk about trauma a lot in a lot of big ways in the world, and you know natural disasters and terrorism and, but I think there's a lot of other traumatic events that people go through, and I think cancer is a trauma roller coaster, and I I think I have just a lot of a lot more understanding about what that diagnosis and that process is. But it also has, this work has helped me with my children, with, mm. with my husband, with my parents, with, with my family, with my friends, in terms of how I listen. I became very aware of when I don't listen, when I'm not present, when I'm reacting, because I had to learn to not react too, because people are sometimes angry that they're seeing a palliative care doctor mm-hmm. and not to take it personally. So it's been incredibly useful in terms of my relationships and my communication skills everywhere. Mm, yeah, but yeah, when you're having the hardest conversations, um, gives you some insight on how to have other difficult conversations. Definitely. We talked a little bit about some of the emotional impact on you of doing this work, and so I wanted to just close with. Uh, having you talk a little bit about ways in which you take care of yourself and maintain your own wellness. (laughs) That I'm not as good at, and that is a work in progress. I definitely have always used exercise in that way, but I have a very full family life, um, some of it more challenging than others. And I still, I think, tend to put other people's needs above my own. And that's something that I'm working on. Obviously, I have not found the answer to how to take care of myself the best. (laughs) You're going to have to give yourself some palliative care. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming in and, and talking with me today, Eve. This has been really interesting. Thank you so much. it for today's episode. Thank you, Eve, for talking to me about your experiences as a palliative care doctor. We'd love to hear from you. Please let us know why you listened and what you like about The Real Cancer Podcast. Please rate the show and leave a review on iTunes. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Real Cancer on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Real Cancer on Twitter at Real Cancer Pod and reach us at Real Cancer Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Diane McDaniel. <laughs>